Women aren't born warriors, we become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week I'm interviewing women who through tragedy and triumph are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Tanya Newbold, I'm so excited to have you on for a little bit. I wanted to chat with you. It's such a hard time for people, and I feel like, you know, they need you. You're a life coach, right? No, Liz. I'm actually a life designer and a spiritual advisor. What? What does that mean, Tanya? Well, not only am I a life designer that helps you overcome mindset obstacles that you don't even know you have, I use my intuition to pinpoint the why. Wow. I love that. Okay, now you came on, you were talking about When the Bow Breaks, your amazing PPD documentary. Is that who you work with? Uh, Women experiencing PPD? Yes, I work with PPD warriors, new moms, and mothers going back into the workforce. But I am also an expert at sales strategies, and I help sales teams find the path to success during this downtime. Oh my God, we need that. How How do people work with you, Tanya? Well, I either work one on one or I do group coaching with both businesses and brands. That's insane. Okay, well, how do we find you? It's actually easy. TanyaNewbold.com, and you can click on Spiritually Inspired Coaching. That's T-A-N-Y-A-N-E-W-B-O-U-L-D.com, Spiritually Inspired Coaching. Wow, people need you, Tanya. I know I'm going to call. Welcome, Warriors. This is my 50th episode Oh my gosh, it's my 50th, 50th episode, one year later, and we are celebrating. A year ago, I started this podcast at 50 years old, something that I was scared to do. I made a dream list of guests, set goals for how many listeners I wanted, and hoped that somebody would be interested in the stories of warrior women. Well, today I have a top-rated podcast with over 20,000 downloads, thanks to all of you. All your reviews and listens got me here, so thank you. And thank you for joining this warrior woman community. We believe in the power of women, collaboration over competition, and pulling another woman up. My guest today was on my dream guest list. You know what they say, if you write down your goals, you're more likely to achieve them. Well, it happened. I hope you enjoy my special 50th episode guest today. Now for this episode's sponsor. Rita Bakutsi. Oh my God, it's so good to see you, Rita. You were episode 25 and you were one of the most popular episodes, by the way, Rita. It was a financial warrior episode. What if I want to come and hang out with you more, Rita? What are you doing? Oh my gosh, Liz, I would love for you to come hang out more with me. And I'm going to extend a personal invitation to you and all your warrior women to join me at Wine, Women, and Wealth because that's a monthly event where we get to have fun together. It's a safe space to talk. And we get to connect with other amazing women. Wine, women, and wealth. This sounds right up my alley. But what if I don't know anything, Rita? What if I really need a kind of a little bit of education around money? Well, then you can check out my free Money 101 webinar where you get to learn six key money principles, how to create a financial shield of armor. I love that. Okay, but what if I'm really serious about money? Like, what if I really want to get in deep with you? I want to learn a lot and I want to go fast. Well, if you want to go fast, Money Education Movement Bootcamp is yours. If you're serious and fast, you get that money mindset mastery, your money skills mastery in a small interactive group. My God, I love all these things. Okay, I want to sign up for everything. Where do I go, Mama Rita? 
you get to go to mamaritamoney.com. Yes, that's M-A-M-M-A-R-I-T-A money.com. Come on, warriors, join me and let's get financially savvy. Okay, today on the show, we have a true warrior woman, actress, producer, and political activist, Amy Brenneman. You know Amy from movies like Heat and Friends and Neighbors and TV shows like Judging Amy. But today, she's agreed to get in the warrior woman hot seat and talk about her life growing up as a mom and how she's learned to cultivate acceptance. Oh, God, Amy, I'm really looking forward to you teaching me about that today. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you for having me. I love the warrior woman hot seat. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, please, it's the safest hot seat there is. I'm, I, I, I joke with all these women. I'm like, I'm here to make you look good. Like, really don't ever think anything else. That's really what's happening here. It's like a it's like giant hour of glowing, glow ups everywhere. Oh, I love it. I love yes. it. Okay, so I, I'm so excited to do this because, you know, obviously I know you as an actress and apparently you're my best friend's neighbor, so this is even better. So now I know <laughs> you on two levels and our kids go to the same school. But I want to know more about you. So tell me about, I always ask women this question because I feel like this little, like, what, what were you like when you were younger? Sometimes informs, strangely informs what we're doing now, but maybe not for you. I don't know. But what were you like when you were younger? What did you think you would be when you were growing up? No, I love this question. I love it, love it, love it. And I love it as the first question because it gets me thinking about all the connections. What was I like? I was I was a really happy kid. I, I have two older brothers who were very mean to me growing up, but <laughs> I were very close. My father's a lawyer. My mother's a judge. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. Very truly middle class. I mean, it was probably upper middle class, but I say middle class because I grew up in a development and you know, everybody's kind of the same. Like nobody had second homes. Nobody went on family vacation. You know, we, everybody went camping and we all went to public schools. My parents probably had a click above education wise, but because my mother worked for the state of Connecticut, money was never, ever overly interesting to my family or me. And that's kind of still true. That's just never been a motivating factor. They were absolutely, their lives were in service. You know, my mother worked in juvenile court. So delinquency, neglect, tough stuff. My father's in environmental law. So always the water wheel of service, you know, find your passion. Like a friend of mine says that vocation is where your passion and the world's need connects, right? So yes. that's vocation. Yes, yes. So I think that was even long before I heard that, that kind of made sense to me. I think I was a dreamer. I had good friends. I usually would have one good friend, was not a popular kid. I was a good kid, but you know, there were the popular girls in high school. I was not one. Very kind of slow, not slow developmental, but like I I bloomed with boys and all that. I wasn't even interested until college, just my biology. I was kind of more innocent. I was a caretaker. You know, my dad was a sober alcoholic. He got sober when I was 17. My experience of that was not any sort of abuse or toxicity. It was more his absent, bless his heart. Like he would be drinking a bottle of wine by the Connecticut River. So he was absent. My mom was angry. So I was like, okay, there's, as I did my own archaeology about my childhood, it was more like, what was in the air that wasn't being said rather than mm -hmm. some explicit upset. And, you know, I, I was always pretty creative. I was a writer from really, I mean, I wrote a novel when I was six and, you know. Oh my God, oh, a novel self, when you know, Self-published. <laughs> but, but language was always huge for all of us. Pretty good student. But in those days, like all the smart kids were sort of lumped together. The truth is I was smart, anything language-based, I was accelerated. But honestly, I can't, I would struggle and 
my best friend literally went to Princeton and majored in rocket science and I was in next to her in math. I should not have been. I feel like now- It's just intimidating. It's intimidating. Now we look at kids a little bit more specifically. Yeah. And then I guess in terms of, very much in terms of where I am now, I mean, I- uh, there was a wonderful woman who's still my friend who still runs a, a, a theater program in my town. And uh, anybody, you know, anybody that wanted to could be in the chorus and, you know, then you'd work your way up. And I got on stage when I was, I think, going into sixth or between sixth and seventh grade. I was chorus member number 212 in the Music Man. And did you, and and did you love it or were you more like, lo- so you loved it from the start? Because that's, that's, it's so interesting to me because I would never get on a stage my whole life. And I was an actor for 10 years and a standard comedian, but I would not get on a stage. And then I would, and it was kind of a similar thing, like a kind of a couple friends who were like, oh no, I wouldn't until I was like older. And then I, then I would do it. Mm-hmm. But I love when somebody says, oh yeah, I, I just walked right on that stage. <laughs> and I was like, well, girl. well, I, I think <laughs> what I loved was, um, it was funny. I was just, yeah, being part of a group. I just, I was not the star. So it wasn't like, yes, I found my voice or I had people looking at me. I was way in the, I mean, I can't even. Yeah, you were 212. But I loved the feeling. It was so emotional. I loved the theater thing of like crying and closing night. Like I, I definitely thought I found my tribe and really never left. Yeah, I love that. You know, I wonder about my son. We were talking about him earlier, Landon, because he once we were dropping Coco off and Coco, as I've told you, is like out of a cannon, like put her on the stage. She's done. Hello. Singing out loud, like singing in front of everyone. I'm like, who are you? But Landon would go to, we'd bring him to like the rehearsals, you know, and he'd go in like these horrible theaters. They're just like plywood and nails sticking out everywhere. And again, she's happy to just be there. She she likes being number 212 too. Yeah. Or she'll be in the front. She'll take either. Me too. And he walked in, he goes, so cozy in here. Oh, (laughs) Is something wrong with you? <laughs> so cozy. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. I might be doing something in the theater later in life. We'll see. I was trying to push, and actually my son did do some backstage stuff because I was like, that, or, you know, tech is awesome. Like, first yeah. of all, he's kind of techie. And then you, you get to be around the cute girls, but you don't have to be on stage with them and stuff. It wasn't for him. He's like, they're really weird. I was like, I know. If you don't <laughs> do it, they do seem a little weird. They cry all the time, mom. <laughs> right, Crying exactly. on the floor and they love it. Yeah. It's just very intense. Probably not a good idea. Um, you mentioned your dad in AA for 35 years, which led you to embrace the 12 steps. But tell me what that means. That like, Does that mean that you, you're not drinking or does that, would that, would, did that manifest more just in following the steps? I'm a member of Al-Anon, which I know we're supposed to like keep ourselves secret, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Al-Anon is for people that have been affected by somebody else's drinkings. And it's funny when my dad got sober, I was 17 and he, cause he's the greatest guy in the world. We lost him about four years ago. He said, you know, there's, if you have feelings that come up, I'm sure he had the same conversation with my brothers, you know, there's a program to help you. And I was like, Ooh, you're, I, that's so touchy feely and you're gross. And then my godmother, who I'm still really close to, who also her dad was an incorrigible alcoholic. Um, she there were certain like things over like basically the college period. It's like there's this thing, and I was like, ew, gross, whatever. And then I think very true to a certain kind of kid and a certain kind of Al-Anon, um, while I was in college and I had structure, and this is true probably for every young adult, right? Anybody that goes to college, it's basically an extension of high school, which is like, I, you know, I do what I'm told to do. Yeah. And then that moment where you're 22, 23, like, oh my God, I don't know who I am. I don't what know what food, what food I like. You know, I've been providing, I mean, and for me, it sort of went a little 
I didn't, I didn't have a, a breakdown, but I was living with my boyfriend in Berkeley and, and I knew it's like, I need a place to figure out who I am. I, you know, beside not what other people want, not what my parents want. I, I was a true recovering codependent. So I stumbled in there and it immediately made sense to me to hear what I think. I think that, you know, any caretaker, any codependent, any feeling person, I mean, I don't, I don't want to pathologize, you know, being affected by somebody else, but it takes a minute for me to go like, what do I think? Yeah. And, and, oh my God, that person may be upset with me for what I think, you know, can I withstand, I'm going to say my truth. You might be mad at me. You know, all of those are still skills I'm really learning. I kind of love that you say recovering codependent because that is a real, real thing. I think a lot of people have a relationship like that with their parents, regardless of alcoholism, where they're kind of enmeshed. And then, I mean, I, I have girlfriends who are turning 50 and they're like, I don't know, my mom is not going to like that. And I'm like, oh man, no, yeah, right, no. Like right. this is your life. Yeah. I don't yeah. give a flying whatever what yeah. she thinks anymore. Like let, let you gotta, you gotta, like, it just makes me so sad. Well, yeah. it's interesting. I remember I'd been in program not that long, but I had started a theater company, which we can also talk about because it's like the best thing in the world. What happened was I, I started the theater company, but I was a little bit younger than everybody else. So I had to like, finish, I had to write a thesis and I had to sort of, you know, take care of my stuff. And then I was like burned out basically. So I was like, I need to take the summer off and, 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 and went and lived with my boyfriend in Northern California and got into program and basically got into therapy and realized I needed a little bit more time. And my still one of my dearest friends, Bill, who was the director of the, and a huge mentor to me, only a couple of years older than me, but a huge person to me. And I remember realize, like the, the realization was dawning, like, I don't want to go back to the company. And somebody I really love is going to be really mad at me. And it took me so long to, I mean, I still hate it. Even with the business things, it's like, oh, I'm going to say something that you might be you might not like, you know, but I remember it was the first time I did. And he was, and he didn't speak to me for nine months, but I knew oh. it was the truth. Yeah, no, I wasn't Meanwhile, wrong. Meanwhile, like your worst fear is realized. But oh. I knew it was true because I knew that if I, if I went back to the company at that particular, by the way, then we reconciled and he's, you know, my dearest and nearest, but you know, it was really my first experiment in going like, here's my truth. And if I don't follow through on it, I'm going to be filled with resentment and I'm going to act out. I mean, one thing that I didn't really, I mean, I don't know why I would, but before my marriage, I was a cheater in relationships. And when I look back on that now, I mean, some of it was, I was in my twenties and I just didn't, and I was a very sexually curious person. And I think I didn't have a good template for being a gal who had Mm -hmm. those appetites. So my thing was I would have real long-term relationships and, and, and cheat. And, um, in my, one of the relationships, we both cheated on each other. I don't feel so bad about that. But the other guy was like, really, like, I should have just said, I don't want to be in relationship with you. I'm not ready to, you know, be monogamous or whatever. But I, he just would be so upset whenever I would bring it up. And so I'm like, God, when I think about it now, it's like, wow, I damaged my integrity. I did uh, because I couldn't withstand his upset, you know, and sometimes you just got to say the truth. People are going to be always. And as soon as I say the truth, the second I begin the process, I'm okay. It's the buildup to it. I will do anything to avoid confrontation as as old and strong and warrior like I am. I still my worst thing. (laughs) I know, but I think it's a big thing and I think it's a lifelong struggle. So I totally understand what you're saying. I want to know about your career path because 
I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit, you were chorus number 212. You were in the, you were in the back hanging out there, but what made you really kind of jump into it for real and say, I'm going to, I'm, I want to be an actress. There were many steps to it. You know, um, I knew that, that whenever I was in a play, I was happy. And when I wasn't in a play, I was grouchy. And my mother actually said, <laughs> my parents were lawyers. I mean, and I grew up in central Connecticut. I did not, I knew vaguely there was a profession, but it was basically like, but nobody does it. <laughs> you know, had I at, at the end of high school, say, said, I, I don't want to go to college. I want to, you know, that would have, I mean, everybody had to go to college. My brothers went to college. I went to college. I went to the one college where you could not major in theater, <laughs> although that ended up being sort of a, a great thing. And, and a lot, of, and, and the good, there were many good things. First of all, I loved studying religion, which was my major, but I also, Bill and all of us met as undergrads and we really were not instructed. There was not a lot of instruction. And I, I'm a big proponent of that. Like, like in early days, like that, people shouldn't tell you about Brecht, just do Brecht, like see what works, you know? And then down the line, you can, you know, get somebody to teach you a German accent or something. I got into Juilliard and ended up not going because I was like, this whole idea of like, we're going to teach you, we're going to, you know, bring you down to the studs. It was like, I'm already 23. I kind of like who I am. And I just kind of want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? That, down to 12. I don't want to bring, I don't want to know So I went to college, started this theater company, which was amazing, which is called Cornerstone, which is still alive and amazing. It was site-specific community-based theater. So we traveled around the country. We lived in very small communities and we would produce theater with the community. And they always had some activists. It ended up, I mean, hopefully it was a good play too, but it ended up being, you know, had some political or activists. We did a lot of teaching. We would get grants. So again, no headshots, no agents, no nothing. And I loved it. I really loved it. And it was sort of a gateway drug for my parents because I'm like, well, I'm acting, but I'm Oh, look what what she's doing. She has a theater company. What does that mean? And then there was a moment, really, I was 26, 27, where I was ready to do something new. And I went to New York and then I, that, that was a big gulp because also I was a little bit snobby. You know, if I'm really honest, it's like, Ooh, now I'm like everybody else, headshots, agents, you know? Yeah. It seems um, there's a desperate feeling of, yeah. of that, that stuff. That stuff. And then actually, and I started booking commercials right away. And so I started the other thing, my parents would not have floated me. I don't think for very long financially. So I was able to, to make a living through commercials pretty quickly. Like I was definitely doing stuff, but I was like, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go. And so I had a a job as a substitute teacher at this really awesome school called Packard Collegiate in Brooklyn. And um, the math teacher, it was like seventh grade math, like weird, but I kind of liked these kids. And the woman was going on maternity leave and I was like, maybe I'll be a math teacher. I don't know. And then a friend of mine was like, hang in. And I was so impatient. It had only been like six months. She's like, hang in a little bit. Six months. I was ready to ditch it at the drop of a hat. Um, But then I started working, and the interesting thing was, so I get I get to New York, and I was a theater actor, and I never regretted not going to Juilliard until I got to New York, and I regretted it for five minutes because I was like, oh, the Yale girls and the Carnegie Mellon girl, like they didn't. I was I was weird. They didn't know who I was. So I had never thought about film and television at all. I started getting flown out to LA, and. So it was never a goal of mine. I always liked California and I liked the American West, but film and television was like my second and third love. I mean, my mother was a big, to... big break then. Well, because I, because I, I feel like I kind of, you got on my radar with heat, but I don't know if that was the, the that, that I was NYPD blue, really. NYPD blue. 
I was the first I forgot about that. Yes, you were. Okay. Yes. No, you're right. I did know of you from there. So I was, so they, I was in New York still and they cast out of New York and yeah, I was the first lady to get naked on network television. I mean, bravo. (laughs) Can we just celebrate you right there? Can we just say thanks so much, Amy? A dubious honor. Um, oh, so that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, then, so then, but then after that, you moved to LA after yeah. that? So yeah. So I had worked a little bit in LA, but I was still sort of back and forth. I had a relationship in New York and then, but I was really ready, you know, for years, this is not uncommon for people out of college. Like I was registered to vote in Connecticut and I had some shit in my parents' house, but then I was in New York. I just was all over the place. And I was like, I want to, and had kind of tendrils of relationships all over the place. And I remember NYPD Blue came along and I was, I cleaned up. I was like, you know what? I want to live in one place. I'm going to live in Los Angeles. I'm going to bring all my stuff. I'm going to register to vote. And I'm available to begin my adult life, which is what happened. I met my husband on NYPD Blue and I was very, very cleaned up. Like I was very present um, in a way that I really hadn't been throughout my 20s. So NYPD Blue was the beginning of, of, my life still, as I know it, it's, it's, it was a profound moment. Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, I mentioned heat and I'm fully mentioning it because my husband and I are obsessed with this movie. We're obsessed with you in this movie, but we're also just obsessed with the movie in general. Yeah. Because there are so many moments in that movie that just freaked me out. I'd never seen, I'd never seen a gun battle like that in my entire life. I had never seen Ashley Judd I thought she was so stunning in that movie. And that moment where she tells Val Kilmer to go away just breaks me up. How about Val Kilmer? Yeah, and Val Kilmer. The beauty of Val Kilmer in that movie. The beauty of Val Kilmer. And then the family aspect of like, you think about people who are kind of doing this thing and the way it was like a family. Yeah. And And you were kind of this, you were like us. Yeah. Right? You were us. So we were like, Amy, no, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Don't you date him. And then we were like, I don't know, Amy. They kind of seem like a family. Maybe you should join. I don't know. <laughs> so you were me. So I was really yes. like, it was really. So tell me about, was that a good experience? Please tell me it was a good experience. It was yes. it a good experience. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it was, well, you're, you're so astute about my role in that. And what happened was, well, the getting at that movie was so... You know, I as I said, I was ready to come out to LA. I, I I really was just all that was great. I do come from this, you know, ensemble theaters theater of of gay men and radical politics, right? So there was a piece of me that's like, oh, I'm the girl in a cop show. You know, now it's a great cop show, but I was like, I'm a feminine, like what? You know, so. I done NYPD Blue and then I did some plays. Or, oh no, Friends and Neighbors, I think. So I was like starting to do some movies and stuff. So my agent was like, you know, there's this, you know, big movie that, and Michael Mann, the director really liked NYPD Blue and he'd like to meet you. So I read the script and all I saw was men and guns. And I was like, Ay, more men and guns. I was like, I didn't do guns. that. Marty, so I said to my agent, like, I don't want to go in on it. And he said, why? And I was like, cause it's more men and guns. Like I just, I, this is not my world. I'm like, a, you know, daughter of a Harvard law school lady. Like I, I, I'm, there's this point at which I don't want to see, and I don't want to see the glorification of violence. I know. And my editor was like, it's Michael Mann. He's a really good movie. Also what was out then was Last of the Mohicans, which I did really love. I was like, okay, he's yeah. a good filmmaker. That was, that was a beautiful movie. So, and he had, um, he had, you know, it's like read for that, for the part Ashley did, you know? And I was like, 
And then my agent, I think, the, and I was not trying to be manipulative, but I was like learning the ropes. And I was like, I don't want to go in there in a meeting and then say no. So do I say no now to the meeting or like to, and my agent was like, who's still my agent said like, listen, it's Michael Mann. Like, just go in. He knows that you're not into it, but he, he would like to meet you. I was like, okay. So I go in and he says, so I hear you don't like my script. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't like your script. And he said, why don't you like my script? And I was like, because I don't understand why men have to solve problems with guns and it's so violent. Da, da, da. And of course he said later to me in that moment, he realized I had to play the part that I played. Like I literally was Edie in that moment. Like, I don't understand any of this. And so that was that, you know, but I think always he, you know, Michael's tough and he, not so much with cast, but he can be very exacting in the crew. He was a painter. He Oh my God. Like he went to the salon and made sure the highlights were right in my hair. Cause he oh, you know, wow. constructs, you know, Details. Yeah. at the same time, like it was Bob De Niro and we had for the first time, two cameras going at all times. And we do these insane amount of takes. So like 50, t- I mean, you, you do so many takes it's five in the morning. You don't even know what you're saying, which is like kind of awesome. And then also being around Bob was, I was still in that you know, good kid theater thing, which is like, oh, okay, you get a scene, you learn your lines, you rehearse it, and then you present it, right? Bob was like, no, 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 the camera's just going to kind of watch me be me. And at one point he he had his lines, he knew his lines basically, but he had his sides, which now I do too. Like he had his sides in his coat pocket. We were doing a scene, it was the diner scene. And and then he paused and and he's like, He's like, oh, what is that line? And he, I just remember going, oh, he's not rattled. He doesn't feel bad about it or embarrassed. The cameras don't stop. And then I thought, oh, this is a new art form for me and very different from theater. And I I channeled him a lot in Judging Amy. I also had this intuition, which is correct, is you only get that relaxed if you have a shit ton of time in front of the camera. You just can't get there any other way, you know? But on Judging Amy, I was in front of the camera so much that I remember like, oh, if I fluff a line, let's not yell cut. If I drop a prop, let's not yell cut. This is about behavior, generating bits of authentic behavior that they will stitch together in the editorial. It's not a performance, it's different. And it's awesome, but it's not the... And it's funny with Time Daily, she, she would talk very openly about this. She's like, oh, I still hate it when the crew comes in. And I'm not ready to show it. And she said, like, I haven't crossed over. It's like, yeah, you just gotta, they're watching our process. They're watching us rehearse. They're watching us not understand a scene. Like we just have to, it's so intimate rather than the theater thing. It's like, I'm ready to show it. Right. And everything is forward facing. I mean, I think that that is like the magic of the in-between, like when you're talking about the cameras continuing a role, right? Like sometimes that magic is in the in-between moment. Oh. Or the moment that you just didn't even think was there because maybe something is rattling you or you saw or heard something differently than you heard the 50 other times you did it. I love right. that quote. It's like Jane Fonda talks about those magic moments when the light is perfect and, and you're in the zone and you don't even know where you are and that stuff's happening. And I'm like, yes, I have seen that. You can see actors when that yeah. is actually happening, when they just have that freedom yeah, that is some sexy stuff. Like yeah. I love that so much. Michael always adored me and all of the cast. I mean, I think he was really tough on the crew, and but we were so held, we were so loved, and it's something I look for now when I with a writer or director, or even if the director hasn't written, but whoever's written it, 
do they love their characters? Do they love them? Doesn't mean that characters are always squeaky clean, but Michael just loved us like a father. And so there was, just think of when you feel safe, when a kid feels safe. You know, a camera can is so um, mechanical, obviously. And the other thing as a theater artist is like, where's my audience? Are you getting the joke? Are we connected? You can't feel it. It's so many steps removed. It's but I did start playing around and, and a lot of it had to do with falling in love with my husband who's a filmmaker. So when the camera would come in really close, you know, the first time it's, it always reminds me when it's really close, it's like, am I getting dental x-rays? Like it's I mean, so honestly, close. Yes. But then I thought, you know, rather than it being a judgmental presence, like what if it was like Brad looking at me on the pillow, like just there's nothing I can do that isn't delighted in you know, then I started feeling safer and safer and kind of creating spaces for me to let let another layer of, of, of pretension and protection come off. I mean, just like Vincent Minnelli did with Miss Judy Garland, just have to say he loved her through that lens. Yes, he yes, did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. She was looking really pretty in that lens. Yeah. You mentioned judging Amy. I did not know that you created it executive produced it and you started it. I knew you were in it, but I didn't know yeah. you created it. But now you're telling me your dad was a judge? My mom. Your mom was a judge. So now this is making a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me how that how that how did that come about? Uh, it was my mom's idea. Um she No. Yeah. He's gonna take credit to that for that forever. So she was the second female judge in the state of Connecticut at the end of uh, my mom's 94. She's still with us. And she and my dad, I mean, the cool activist part of them is that she really was instrumental in, in 1967 in Connecticut, but I think it was sort of a moment. Um, that was also on a, on a federal level. Before that, children were not seen as full citizens, right? They were seen as not property, but they were like, and in 1967, there was a, a court case where, you know, no matter how young a child is in court, they are, award, they are you know, they get a, their own lawyer, they get their own, you know, it sort of shifted the whole thing. And my mother was right there at that time of really looking at very young people, like four or five, you know, Mm. What do you want? You know, and and they're you know provided support and social workers and stuff. But so I came out here and I start doing TV, and then I at that particular moment was doing like movies and heat and stuff. She and she's like, I love Law and Order. It's like I don't like Law and Order. I find it really boring. She, and <laughs> partly because there's not enough character, you don't go home with them. Blah blah blah. But she said, Why isn't there a show about juvenile justice? And then she had this her seventieth birthday party, and my husband and I made a little happy birthday video for her. And we spent a couple of days at the Harvard or Hartford courthouse, and there was social workers and lawyers and probation officers. And you know, you sit in a courthouse, and and my my nose for like a TV show is like a little getting honed. And I was like, oh, interesting, super duper cross section, ethnicities, educational background, blah blah blah. But I mean, I was like, ooh, this is this could be interesting. So I pitched it. And on the personal level, I was like, I want to go home with people. And I also want to incorporate my, part of the way I pitched it was, you know, we talk a lot about trailblazing women, but I'm the daughter of a trailblazer. <laughs> what happens when, you know, some, like, do you blaze, keep blazing that trail? Blah, 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 you know, but I was like, how about two strong women, not just one strong woman? So um, yes, I, 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 and my husband directed the pilot. I mean, so he was basically directing his mother-in-law in, in the guise of Tyne Daly. Yes, he was. And, and everything happened during that show. I mean, I, I, um, it was such an important time. I had both of my children. We had to do fertility. We had to do, I mean, it was just, oh my gosh, insane six, six and a half years. 
That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, you mentioned you have your kids. I want to talk about your daughter because even Tanya was telling me, she's like, oh my God, you have to ask her about her daughter. She's so awesome. So you're, tell me about your, your daughter. I, I know, know a little bit about your son, but tell me about your daughter. Yeah. Um, my daughter, Charlotte, is turning 20 next week, which is Nana's. I was going to say she was born sort of, you know, typical, but actually right at the get-go at birth, she was diagnosed with this pretty rare endocrine disorder that because Brad and I are recessive carriers of this thing, very treatable, but it was my first, but I, cause I did genetic tests. I was like, I thought I was prepared. <laughs> yes. Oh, isn't that hilarious? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Let me be prepared to be a mother. <laughs> yeah. So that was weird, but okay. You know, totally okay. And amazing doctors caught it, you know, and then her development was just really different. And she was two, three, I had her in speech at three, I had her, well, speech at two, actually, an IEP at three, special ed services, and never had an overall diagnosis. So she has some qualities that are similar to our autistic peers, but she's not autistic. It's a little bit different. She kind of she has an, you know, what we call in the biz, an invisible disability, which has its own, it's it's good in some ways and really super hard in some ways because her, a lot of language, I would, anyway, cut to, um, right, or no, when she was 16, she, when we'd done genetic things to see if there was anything there, but, you know, genetic testing is getting more and more specific yes. that um, they do something called microarray genetic testing and that just sees the genes even more clearly. So she has a spontaneous deletion at the terminal end of her 22nd chromosome. There's 1400 people in the world. And it absolutely, when I read it, I was like, that's her. And not only is that her, but the syndrome, she's a kind of a superstar for having that syndrome. So like, you know, she has language stuff. Some folks with the syndrome are, you know, never have any language or never toilet. And so it was one of those moments of like, oh my God, I've been judging her, not judging her, but like, I thought she was over here. It's like, oh, it's sort of like, oh my God. I said to my husband, she's, we've asked a person with one leg to run a marathon. Like I had no, like all of the ways she's been coping and figuring things out. And as she's gotten older, we've all gotten happier, (laughs) frankly, because we've just moved into celebration. And we hang out with neurodiversity and disability activists all the time who are like busting open the world in the same way that BIPOC trans activists are busting open the world. And that appeals to me as a little rabble rouser. I thought when she was younger, like, am I going to cry when she doesn't go to college? Like, no, it's fine. It's totally fine. Like she's in this amazing program. In fact, I look back on myself now and I was like, oh, I was really limited. I didn't know, you know, I thought everybody had to take their SATs and go to a four-year college. Like I was quite limited with just because I didn't know. Although, you know, because of arts and stuff, I was always interested in whoever was marginalized. That's what Cornerstone is. I was always interested in marginalized communities or communities that hadn't had their place in the sun with their voice. So once I started thinking about it that way and learning to be an ally for her, um, it's just gotten really a lot better. That's amazing. I, you know, that's so funny that you say like you, you were kind of measuring her by a different stick. My son was born with like some, some, he was born with a, well, let's just say a different hand, not, not the regular hand that you would normally be born with, but when he was born, he had a stroke and he almost died and they were going to amputate his arm. And he's had over 50 surgeries now on this arm. And, you know, we've just been through so many things and he's not brain damaged, but there's definitely some like learning stuff going on. And you're making me think, 
I'm going to talk to you offline about this microgenetic thing because I'm now wondering. Oh, yeah. It's a blood draw, by the way. She's had two neuropsychs and neuropsychological evaluations that are three day. And I mean, it's just this huge thing. And 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 they, they were OK, you know, but I so actually it was right after and nothing really of use came of them, to be honest with yeah. you. Yeah. But then there's an amazing pediatric neurologist named Suzanne Go and down well she's actually all over Southern California now, and she said I'd like to do this test and I was like oh this poor thing has been through so much it's a blood draw yeah and what's so interesting is a friend of a peer a good friend of hers actually who got an autism diagnosis you know a while ago now she's in high school her mom was like I think I'm just going to go down there I was like it's a blood draw who cares and there's a genetic nick for this girl and which doesn't mean that the services that 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 Charlotte's friend got for folks with autism is wrong. It just means we're going to be able to differentiate a little bit more, a little bit more. And, and, and really customize something a little bit. I mean, I think that's, I mean, we all grew up, I grew up, I'm, I was born in New York or outside in, well, North Carolina, but I lived outside of New York and Connecticut and all those places. And it was like, there's one way to do something. Yeah. You are going to go to this school. You're going to go to public school. You're going to go to college and you're blah, blah. Like yeah. no one was like, oh, let's see who you are, Liz. Yes. Let's see. Correct. <laughs> no one was And I didn't even that. know like, I had that. I know. I wrote a play about this that actually South Coast Rep here in Southern California is going to produce whenever we can have plays. But it's really about, it, it's about this all, but honestly, it's about my own becoming be- a better ally, you know, really is less about Charlotte. I mean, although she's bloomed into an extraordinary person. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So it's it's been a, it's been a journey. I love it. You kind of mentioned, you know, when I was doing your little pre-interview questions, I loved you. You were the first person to answer with this answer, by the way. You said your hardest lesson has been acceptance. And so tell me kind of what that means. How do you, how how have you kind of had to kind of befriend (laughs) acceptance, Amy? (laughs) I need to know. I need to know how to befriend it myself. A lot of help. Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a periodic, it's a cyclical thing. I just tend to have the same process, which is, you know, if there's a, an issue or something that's a a problem or something that needs to be attended to, my ego just thinks I can figure it out. You know, I just think I, and you know, my ego and I have a really rich relationship, (laughs) Um, I yeah, love her. A long time. She gets she gets shit done, and she's she's awesome. I mean, but I think that what she doesn't do well is surrender to a bigger picture, or take a minute and let things unfold. Um, you know, I mean, the last year, the you know pandemic, but what really where I saw my issues come up, and a lot of us was the upsetting political situation oh, and. And just going to a super bad place, like night after night. And, and, and yet I was doing, you know, I did a fundraiser for some Senator candidate. I mean, I was doing, and my husband. You were active. You were active. You were doing things. I was active. I was doing things. Right. And my husband kept saying like, which I love. He's like, without shutting me down, but it probably was the millionth time he'd, I'm like, what if this? What if that? And he's just like, keep your head down. Just keep doing your work. You know, and it's always like one day at a time, do your work, have a little faith. There's lots of, you know, especially in that situation and continuing, there's lots of things at play that I can't even conceive of, right? So do my work, know that my own mental health is really, I'm not going to solve these things. I'm not going to solve, I mean, and Charlotte's special needs was part of it. Like, I'm not going to solve it. But what happened was, 
what I thought was the problem changed. And then, then interesting bits of help and interesting, and then accepting, you know, if today, you know, Charlotte doesn't progress, let's say, you know, cognitively or skill level beyond where she is today, like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, so my kind of like work really hard and hopefully something, or I had it recently, um, my mom's in hospice and she's with us and her vitals are strong. She's not going any anywhere anytime soon, but she is in hospice. And I, my, my to-do list goes nuts. Cause you know, if, I think for a lot of the hospital must be like this where, you know, before that you have a million things, call this doctor and call this doctor. And then, you know, it just becomes like, this is really the best um, choice. And then I, and then it's like tumbleweeds, like, like what's the to-do list? It's like being together. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's so hard, you know, to stop. So I feel like the, that cycle, no matter what new challenge comes my way, and I'm more aware of it and I reach out and I don't, I don't make things worse, which I used to, but uh, there's all often a moment like, oh, forgot about it. Acceptance again. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's just, you got to learn it over and over again. Over and over. Well, because I think what happens is these new situations come in. And once again, I always say, I feel like we forget we can do hard things. Yeah. We like convince ourselves. Oh, like I can't do that. Nope. Yeah. Nope. I can't do that. It's yeah. like, well, no, you actually can. And you yeah. have done it before. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yeah. And you handled it before and you actually, you did a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But so I think we forget and then we become forgetful and then right. we have to learn all those things. Well, and I would also say folding into that is, is, um, the asking for help, which I'm much, much better at because, you know, the ego also says like, I can do this alone, like, you know, and like pretty much like if I have a new, you know, whatever it is, it's like the kids have a new challenge or a new interest. It's like, it, it, it really takes me half a day. It's like, I'm going to reach out to somebody who knows about this. You know, I've gotten much better. At that. And immediately that gets me out of my head into conversation. And at least I'm in the world. I'm not sort of in my own private Idaho. Yes. I love that. So you were, you mentioned a little bit, your kind of activist work, the political landscape. Tell me, why are you so passionate about that? Because I, I mean, like you, I was, I was in a state of, you know, up and down horror. You know, I was, I was motivated. I'm writing postcards to swing states. I'm organizing fundraisers. I got, a, by the way, my first Christmas decoration that I put up this year is a huge, tall, life-size Joe and Kamala. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm decorating for Christmas. Like, you are? I'm like, yes. They're like, where's your decoration? I'm like, here it is. And it's still there. And people have the funniest reaction, Amy. People see it and they first go like, oh, that's so funny. And then they, and they're looking and I see them looking and looking and I say, he likes hugs. You can go over there and hug him if you want. I want to hug them. That's the level we're on where we feel so abused from everything that's happened to us that people are like, I want to design me and be yeah. with Joe oh, and Kamala yeah. for one minute. So yeah. I definitely, listen, I've, I've gone out to the crazy place. I've gone yeah. to the calm place. I've gone to the acceptance. I've gone to the rebellion. I've gone yeah. to, I'm in the resistance. Yeah. Especially on Twitter. Yeah. So I want to know about your activist work and why it's so important to you. I just think it's part of being a citizen. You know, I think that, you know, I feel like everybody should, you know, have work that they like, have relationships, have an exercise plan and be civically engaged. You know? so, um, so in that level, it's just kind of what you do. Yeah. I mean, what I feel like is interesting about this moment and, you know, America's not unique. I mean, the authoritarianism is, is, and like, I, I feel like I, I feel like I'm so naive four years ago, to be honest with you. You know, it's like, I oh, really have, have learned so much and I'm grateful for that actually. 
Um, yeah, and I think it's it has to do with patriarchy and and what you see as leadership and what you see, you know. So you, you know, you, you I, I I think that some people who like an abusive daddy probably have an abusive daddy, so it makes sense to them and it makes them nervous if they don't have an abusive daddy. So I think we're working on on many levels and democracy is um, it's not a you know we don't have a king you know that's another system and if you like that you can go to that other system but but i think that engagement and respectful engagement and you know i think that i in terms of the social media piece of it where we're so reactive all day long i did pull back from that my fr- a friend of mine who's a sufi actually she has this great sufi saying like before we let's see i'm going to get it wrong now is it kind oh yes i know what you're saying is it is it, is it and then one of them Useful? is is yeah, is it truthful and is it necessary? Yeah. So I, at a certain point, was like, implication, implication. It's like, I don't think it's necessary. I think that person is, I think actually 50,000 people have said that. I don't need to say that. It could be 51. Right. I, and no, so, I'm thinking about it. And I do think that to your, um, you know, as much as I'm very interested in Im- new images of female leadership and female strength and power, I'm equally as interested in emotionally centered men. So I think that Biden, Jamie Raskin, Merrick Garland, we're seeing these men who are not afraid of emotion. And in fact, they're like, you know, Jamie Raskin's like, I'm here because my son died. Like I'm like, they they can incorporate, obviously Biden knows that, you know, in a grief stricken time, what a wonderful thing to have somebody who knows about grief, you know? So I think that I'm, I'm, I mean, I had a great dad. I mean, I still, I have a great dad. Um, And he, you know, my mother was a little bit of what I would call the more of the the masculine energy that to do. Da, da, da. My father, probably because of his 12-step work, we got the divine feminine, my brothers and me. I feel like it was in the package of a male. And I think now with trans and gender flu, it's like when I say masculine feminine, I don't mean genitalia. You know, it's more like we need activist and we need receptive emotional wisdom. And so you see what happens, you know, on January 6th when that when it goes haywire, um, for millions of reasons, but, and then, and then the last thing I would say about that is, um, I'm really being in reproductive uh, rights and justice and stuff. And I have been for a really, really long time, but, you know, for me, a game changer was in 2016. I was part of an amicus brief, um, to the Supreme court case where I, I had an abortion when I was 21. It was very positive. It set me up to be a mom, to be a mom to a special needs kid. Um, it's just part of, you know, the healthcare and part of the right that we have in this country. And then I, I had some haters I, and they, they still hate me, you know, they, and at first I was, I was really thrown by that and really scared by it. And now I'm, I'm totally okay with it. So that was really important too. Like I got skin in the game. I'm, I'm fully present with my story, with who I am. I have no regrets. I haven't. And, and also I have, there's nothing shamey connected to that experience. And that was important for some women to hear too. I, I literally, you know, we think we're crippled by shame. I had this woman come up because there's this New York times article about it. And a baseball mom actually came up and she was like, I had an abortion too. You know, and, I was, and I was like, do you feel bad about it? She's like, no, I feel fine about it. But I didn't know you could just say that. I was like, oh, right. Now we're ashamed of our mental health. Right. She's like, no, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. But I, I feel like I'm supposed to feel bad. <laughs> I mean, right. Well, you freed somebody else to do that. And also that must have been hard because you kind of are, you're kind of a little bit of an America's sweetheart person. Yeah, that's People gone. Really- yeah. <laughs> People like you, Amy. And so you're right. When Some people don't really like come me. Out and and say that, me actually. People are like, no, Amy, don't say that, you know? Right. 
So right. I'm glad that you said it because you're yeah. the exact person who needs to say it. Because like right. if Madonna says it, who, who the hell cares? Because right. she does so many incendiary things. We'd be like, oh, it's Madonna again. Yeah, but yeah, you yeah. You say it, Amy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it a no, no, it's been, it's been, and to really, well, and it's funny, circling, I feel like we've gone full circle. As a, as a recovering Alana, right? To withstand being hated yeah. was awesome for me, actually. Really awesome. Not easy, but I'm like, oh, that's what I needed for my growth in that area. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Exactly, right? We're disappointing a lot of people and you were like, yeah. I, I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do it anyway. Yes. Well, well, tell me what is next? What's the next chapter for you? You've had so many interesting chapters. I'm kind of wondering what you're doing next. Well, what I'm- What, what do you want to do? Yeah, what do I want to do? Um, well, it's funny. I- do love the producing thing. And so I'm, I'm, uh, sort of getting a couple TV shows going on a producer level, which I love and something you can do during a pandemic. I was in the middle of shooting a show with my beloved Jeff Bridges when he up and got lymphoma Um, and he's doing great and we'll be back. Okay, good. But I bring that up because I was sort of at a place a couple of years ago where it's like, yeah, I like acting, but I like writing more and grownups write. And then I've fallen in love with acting again. And I'm telling you, Anybody that spends five seconds with Jeff Bridges just wants to be him. So he's just been an incredible person to come in my path. And I like, that's a show called the old man on Hulu. And is then, and then, out? cause I'm going to watch it. Are you, has it? No, the thing I have out now is called tell me your secrets, which you should really watch on Amazon, oh. which we actually shot a couple years ago in New Orleans, but it's awesome. Super Ooh, awesome. I'm going to watch it. Um, okay. Super dark and great. I mean, I was just talking to my husband that it was a year ago this week that we all went inside. Yes. So a year ago, oh. I had just wrapped two months, two and a half months with Jeff Bridges. We were supposed to, at the end of March, go to Marrakesh. I mean, it was such a fat, I was like, oh, it's so fabulous. And I literally was so happy working with Jeff. And I was like, I'm too happy. <laughs> Something's going to happen. <laughs> oh my God. No, don't say that. Yeah, I did, but I was, I was like, I was, you know, the I, good I thing about that is when the pandemic hit, I was very filled up and in a good I, I was a little chipmunk with chip. I had like had good stuff happening. So we're going to finish that. And then more and more of my writing. I, I also in the old man is John Lithgow. And he, I sent him a couple of, I, I write short, I write essays basically sort of like Anne Lamott style. And he was like, just, would you just put it together in a book? And I was like, you're annoying, but yes. I'll <laughs> um, I do feel um, when my word and partly the, the plays that I write it, when I, I love acting. I definitely see other people that are better at it. <laughs> wow, you're really good. I like acting. I love acting. But I will say that the, the thing about uh, writing your own words and and it, it's like, it's like oh, nobody else can do that. That's, That's my so contribution. That's so true. That's yeah. so true. You, there's not two of those people, right? So I, feel, well, I, th- I still think your acting is pretty damn good, Amy. Oh, thanks, man. I, I just did that to get a compliment. No. Yeah, just to get a compliment. <laughs> and I understand disappointment and thinking everything's going well because guess where my 50th, my 50th birthday was April 5th, April 14th of 2020. And I was going to Italy, Amy. I had a month long trip planned. Isn't that special? Oh. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean it's in Italy? Why there? <laughs> Why that place? No. And, then I, and that's when I thought it was just going to stay in Italy, by the mm. way. And then I'm like, oh, how funny. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the things we what don't What a year. What a year. What a crazy ass year. Okay. We're going to the speed round, Amy. It's time. Okay. I'm ready. This is the fun times. Okay. Get ready. Okay. Cocktail it's of choice. It's just like quickie, quickie. Yeah. Don't it's quick. just whatever's coming to your mind. Cocktail of choice. Lemon drop. 
I haven't had a lemon drop since college. I have one the other day. It's really good. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have one. I'm coming to your house. I'm going to have okay, one. Um, you know mantra, <laughs> I'm coming over. I'm going to walk across the street. Mantra or quote that you live by? It's the Leonard Cohen song. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Oh, that's so pretty. I love it. What makes you feel unstoppable? Uh, mountain biking. Really? Yeah. My son, my son has turned me on to, so here I live in the Valley, as you know, there is a mountain range, the Santa Monica mountains, and then there is the beach because it's pandemic and we are doing things that we don't usually do. We ride up to dirt, what they call it, dirt Mulholland. So I ride up the mountain and then I ride and then I can ride to the beach. I am impressed. Yeah. It's wow. actually not that bad. Like you, it, the getting up to the mountain is terrible and then, and then it's okay. But I just like saying that because I'm in my fifties and it's like, you I'm, are hot stuff coming through. I can't take it right now. Okay. What is your greatest joy? My greatest joy is being with friends and family at my house in Martha's Vineyard and everybody has guitars and food that they want and the seabirds are out. Martha's Vineyard is a magical land of fantasticness. So I'm very jealous that you have a house there. Yeah. I, I should be. Yeah. <laughs> I Husband, I need a house in Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Who do you admire? Like so many people. I'm going to give one person, I'm going to say Kamala Harris. Oh, yes. Yeah. Winning it for us all. Yeah. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of becoming a better ally to my daughter. It was some hard one shit. Yeah. And now you've got it. So now you've got it down. Now you're in the sexy part of, of, of raising a daughter. I'm in the, I'm in the hell, I'm yeah, in the hell, know. hell walls. 20, 20 is awesome. I gotta say it's cool. That's, awesome. yeah. That's so cool. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. What is exciting you the most right now? Um, what's exciting me the most right now is, is I have, God, it's just, uh, comes and goes, but I get up early and I write a little bit every day. And, and, and when I do that, I get excited that I can, I can commit to that probably only the last couple more days, but when I do it, I feel really excited that I can change a habit and do something that my soul wants to do. And yet everything else comes in the way because it's not remunerative. It's not taking care of people. I just kick it to the end of the to-do list and I'm trying to kick it to the front. Well, that's what it takes to be a warrior. So that's why you're a warrior woman. Yeah. And I love it. Thank you so much, Amy. I have oh. to tell you, I have to tell you, this is my 50th episode. <gasps> um, you are my lucky 50. Amazing. I'm so happy to spend it with you. Thank you so much oh. for coming on and doing this with me. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You're awesome. And I hope to see you when we're out of our caves. I mean, I'm so coming great. over for the lemon drop. Let the husband okay. know I'm coming. My husband I will come and want to see your tree house. Just he loves, he's a builder. Yes, a yes, I would love He'll come too. I would yes, I, and I'm sure I'm going to see you at our school. So yeah. eventually when it opens, Amy. Exactly. <laughs> but yes, you're my 50th episode. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you for asking me. I really oh, enjoyed oh it. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Okay, thank you everyone for joining me today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye.